Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. In the last few episodes, you've been able to hear three episodes about digital health in South America. We talked about Peru with Jonathan Bringas, MD and innovator, CEO of Lapsi Health. There's a lot of opportunity for, for companies to work with, with Peruvian hospitals and clinics and private care, most likely because of the fact that they are not going to attempt to, in, to develop a lot and they would probably love to procure to be leveled with the standards in the US and Europe. We dove into Argentina with Santiago Troncar, CEO and founder of Future Dogs Latin America. If I need to, to point one word that would make the landscape is disparity. You have high level, very sophisticated tools and digital health innovation in some parts of the country and some cities in some government agencies and or private Uh, entrepreneurial companies and then in some other regions of the country you don't have access to very elemental and basic health services so disparity may be the right word to, to describe how Argentina is evolving in digital health and today we're going to look into Chile and cancer care in Latin America with Luis Santiago CEO of Pegasi Luis was already a guest on the podcast two years ago, and I added the link to that episode in the show notes. Pegasi is a healthcare IT company that pivoted from providing hospitals with EMR systems to narrowing down to cancer care with their oncology information system, which aims to improve the time it takes to diagnose and treat cancer patients in the developing countries. In this episode, Luis and I talked about oncology management in South America, changes in healthcare digitalization in South America after the pandemic, and how does one scale across South America. Enjoy the show, and if you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Additionally, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. The newsletter is published only once a month and brings to you a deep summary of one of the topics that we cover in the show. Now let's dive in today's discussion. So, Luis, thanks again for joining this discussion on Faces of Digital Health to talk a little bit about digital health in Chile, in South America. We spoke for the first time in 2020, so three years mm -hmm. ago. The pandemic was like in full blown. So I just want to know how things have changed since and basically... At the time, I remember that you were explaining to me a lot about what the situation in Venezuela was like because of the economic implosion. The situation was dire from the economic and the healthcare space. A lot of people are actually still fleeing to from Venezuela. A lot of people are going to, to the U.S. And you had a company there that was the among the main providers of healthcare IT. So 
Are you still present in that market? And can you maybe just do a quick recap of what the company that you run, so Pegasi Med, does today? Because you actually transitioned from what you did before, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, and happy to be here again. I was saying before, it sounds like it was a lifetime ago talking 2020 again, talking to you right now. Yeah, we we have been changing a lot of the focus of the company in the past few years, and this is based on a personal company level experience. We started working in September 2019 with Roche in Mexico for an initiative that's called Health Tech Builders and trying to create a new ecosystem for oncology patients. And we, we started seeing that there, there's a lot of need for digitization, the digitization of the process in which you intake oncology patients and then you run through their entire information and uh, transform that into the diagnosis in order to start the treatment, like the, the oncology patient journey, given that it's a catastrophic disease or a catastrophic condition, is very lengthy and requires a lot of steps. So we entered this project into September 2019. We thought it was like among the many projects in we, which we could contribute. But then during 2021, like we advanced a lot. We did some implementations in Ecuador and Mexico. And, but in May 2021, one of, I think one of the people that actually created Pegasimed as a platform told us about some symptoms that he had, like in, in talking internally with the physicians in Roche and talking internally with our team of physicians, we like in May thought it was cancer. But in October, like it took around five months until October 2021 for him to get a diagnosis in Peru. And he got his first chemotherapy in December 2021. It was a clear cell cancer in the kidney that spread to the lungs and the brain. So that led to, we, we lost Jean-Pierre in April 2022 um, with massive metastatic cancer in the lungs and the brain. So it was very hard at that time. And then we saw that the work that we were developing with Roche in, in tandem with the institutions but in Chile, in Mexico, in Peru, really had the opportunity to positively affect the lives of oncology patients. If we help accelerate the diagnosis and the time until the person gets to a treatment stage, we have the ability to increase survival rates by 26%. So that became the, the mission of the company. Can you maybe explain that a little bit further? Just because I think that sometimes we focus too much on technology and what technology can do. But at the same time, there's other challenges that maybe cause that somebody doesn't get the treatment, especially in public healthcare systems. The, the problem is just the waiting times. There's not enough uh, clinicians. Mm -hmm. You don't get to be seen soon enough. So how exactly are you addressing that? In one of your previous podcasts, not here, but in other discussions that you had, I heard you mentioning that the biggest challenge in developing countries now is that they're moving away from dealing with these infectious diseases to basically dealing with things like cancer and cardiovascular diseases. But because they're developed or found out in later stages, the treatment is more difficult and more expensive. So what's the 
role of technology versus the healthcare system and the capacity that it has. And we can focus maybe on on Chile just to be a little bit more specific. Yeah. Oh, and, and that's a great question. Like what we see in the, and we saw it in Jean-Pierre's journey through cancer, he usually had to collect a lot of information from different providers, some of them in the public sector, some of them in the private sector, and get all of that information lined up to show it to the internist. Like he wasn't seeing an oncologist at the time because they didn't know that it was, it was cancer. Like there, there was no concrete suspicion about what they had. Like we internally had talked about it in the team and we work with oncologists that have been in the practice over 20 years. They said this is probably cancer, but he couldn't be treated as an oncology patient until he had a diagnosis. So he ended up going to a private clinic to get a PET scan, like positronic emissions tomography. That's where we actually find out there was cancer. There, there was At that time, there wasn't just one. There, there was the biggest tumor that was in the kidney. The other two were in the lungs and the brain. So like in secondary reasons. And that's when the actual oncology treatment began. And this is a reflection of what happens in the entire journey in Latin America as a region. We usually have about four, like the average in the region is four and a half months to detect that a patient has cancer uh, to get this like official diagnosis and begin their treatment. The fastest countries in the region, of course, are Brazil and Argentina. That like mm, their mean time is three and a half months. And the, the longest taking country is Honduras. That takes about 232 days to diagnose a patient. If you talk about these figures and you first compare them to how private centers create their outcomes, in the region, the comparison is abysmal. Like it's, we have seen cases of, for example, breast cancer that get diagnosed in just a month. And the other month, because the person has is on the private sector, and on the other month, the person already has had surgery or started chemotherapy or started radiotherapy. So the chances of us detecting that specific cancer and it spreading through metastasis are much lower. But that's because the person had the ability to go to the private sector to get that early detection. And it also is dependent on the time that the patient took to actually go to a physician. So there's in, in cancer, there's two wait times that you have to be aware of. Of course, the first one being the patient wait time, how long until you got that lump checked out, and the system waits, the system wait times, like how long until you actually got an hour where an oncologist or a physician that's able to trigger your your suspicion through detection or through diagnosis, through treatment process. So, and we are also in a region that, excluding Brazil, we don't have, we get to close to 5,000 oncologists, no more. So the problem is that they have to crunch to a massive amount of data most of the data, and this is something that we talked in the first podcast, are, is still on paper. Like we are, our implementation processes for EHRs in the region take about between three to five years in the public system and take about a year and a half to three years in the private system. So it's not like it's really fast in the process in which we start digitizing oncology clinics or like a clinic that has it's like general 
services and then has an oncology specific department. So that usually takes a long time and the patient journey hasn't changed that much in the past three or four years. It's still an analogic patient journey. So usually what ends up happening is that you have this suspicion and the physician asks you to get that tomography usually done when you go to the tomography service in the hospital, the wait time is three and a half months, four months, and then you are forced to go outside of the hospital's system, get to a private vendor, get those results, and then schedule an appointment with the physician in order to get those results into your folder. And given that oncology is that the, a catastrophic disease until the committee, the tumor board, doesn't get together and diagnoses that you have a specific type of cancer, your treatment doesn't begin. So you're stuck in this, in this loop of getting like tiny bit of information from different vendors all around. And the patient has the responsibility to conciliate all of that information, give it to the physician so they can start the diagnosis process. Unless you do it internally in the hospital and then that conciliation happens inside of the hospital, but then the wait times can be like three or four months. So it's a situation where you actually need to have that information very fast at hand and uh, have that information analyzed really fast. And when you start seeing the work queue that the physician has, it's huge and mostly it's administrative work. So we need our oncologists, like in a scenario where there's an offer, a demand process or a, a problem. Uh, we don't have enough oncologists to diagnose the 1.4 million new oncology cases that we have in Latin America. So we, did, we don't need them writing reports and conciliating information that comes in a CD or information that comes in a paper report. We need them actually diagnosing and treating patients. So that's where we, there, there's a huge opportunity for technology to work in tandem with physicians, lowering the amount of administrative work that they do, getting all the information together and showing them that information in a very concise format so we can speed up diagnosis and get more patients in treatment faster. Okay, so how exactly are you enabling that? And maybe you can reflect a little bit on the pivot. So three years ago when we spoke, you mentioned that basically your EHR in Venezuela, I think, has mm -hmm. the data of 3 million patients. And at that time, basically your investors or advisors were encouraging you to try to figure out what kind of information can you get out of that to build new yes. solutions to, to aid clinicians? So how did you go from that to what you're doing now in oncology? And also how is your whole idea of where Pegasus is going to go changing? Because at the time, I know that you mentioned the value of Epic and we're trying to become the Epic of South America. If I would try to simplify the strengths of Pegasus IT system. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think we, like Pegasi at the time, was more on the reflection of the experience that we, were, we brought to the table until, up until that point. And that experience was mostly on a more B2C format. Like we were dealing with small consultation offices, like medium consultation offices. We did some clinics. We had experience with 11 clinics at that time. But that was mostly on the private sector. 
then we saw that in each of the countries in Latin America, there are like very huge actors. And these are the people who usually get the contracts to implement hospitals and implement clinics. And they take three to five years. And then many of the clinics are lagging in terms of the services that they were promised in the moment of signing the contract versus the services that they have. It's also many clinics start seeing the complexities of doing this digitalization, digitalization, like there are mandatory things that you have to do. For example, we're currently a huge operation in Ecuador. Like It's the country where we have the biggest operation. And in Ecuador, if you are a patient from a public insurance company like RP, uh, IS, those type of insurance companies, then you have to sign your documents, like physically sign them. If you don't, then you cannot collect on that. So like the entire principle of digitization is to actually prevent that from happening, like from that going to paper. But then you have to do it. And then you have to figure out like technological ways to speed up that process. Because in the end, it's not only that the, the amount of time that it takes for the institution to actually start treating the patient, that's the one that's affected, but also the ability of that institution to sustain themselves throughout time. So digitization doesn't become a tool, it actually becomes a burden in many of those cases where you are required to have very manual processes. So it begins like this ongoing discussion with healthcare ministries, becomes an ongoing discussion with centers or institutions that regulate care delivery. For example, in Ecuador, we're currently dealing with the implementation of a new law protecting private information, like a HIPAA for Ecuador, mostly like a GDPR for Ecuador. So there's a lot of things that haven't been drawn in the sand there. Like we don't know the actual regulation, the rules of the implementation, but we have to be prepared for every scenario. That Those type of discussions prevent the digitization from happening as fast as we thought it would happen in the region. And it becomes like this ongoing debate on whether we should be moving faster. In the oncology patient's case, we are sure that we should be moving faster. But how do we keep up with laws that aren't necessarily drafted in the spirit of moving faster, but to actually prevent bad actors from exploiting patient data, from doing bad practices that get in the way of implementing these types of solutions faster. So yeah. like in the, in the US, you, you, like in, in the comparison between Epic Cerner, you have the same laws apply to 360 million people, like 400 million people. I think that it's the, in the US right now. Here in Latin America, you have a different set of rules applied to populations of 35 million, 40 million, 80 million, and that every country becomes a very small container for a very large amount of work that you have to do to actually implement technology and digitize healthcare in that specific country. 
if we look at Chile more closely, so you mentioned that basically, I think this was maybe even before we started recording, but you said that in 2020, there was this big hope and expectation that because of the pandemic and telemedicine, everything's mm-hmm. going to be digitized, digitalized and improved in terms of the speed of care and access to care. But now we're going back to normal. So in 2019, Chile actually created a department of digital health in the Ministry of Health to manage and monitor the technological and communication tools. What impact did that have on sustaining the focus of the government on healthcare digitalization, given that it's a public system where 75% of the population gets care through public services? Uh How is the government investing in digitization? Because one of the challenges that was mentioned by one of the governments here in Europe is that you can get a lot of European funding for investments, but a lot of companies today base their business models on subscriptions and a subscription yes. is not a, an investment. Yeah, no, that happens a lot. We were different, like in the recent days with a hospital here in Chile, it's a very large one in the center of Santiago. And we were talking about them using our platform for anatomical pathology, specifically in oncology. And when I said the model was a subscription, they said, oh, we need to talk about that specifically because the other vendor that we currently have that's not supplying the entirety of what we need, like we're doing a lot of patient engagement throughout the, through the platform, like result delivery and keeping patients tied to the, their treatment models through a platform that we have that's called Haptical. Get a little into detail about that later. And then that actually became an issue. Is there a way for us to give you a single payment and we own the license to the platform? And then since you are providing that service through a cloud provider, then you have to get an Excel sheet and calculate how much will it cost for you to keep that patient, that, to keep that customer and their amount of users for 10 years, 20 years. And that's when you can sit down and talk about the price of the license. And it usually leaves you in a price that's near the prices that you see from suppliers in Europe or suppliers in the US, and then you are not competitive locally. So it's like taking, taking risk selling into a, that specific format like however here in chile at the very least the legislation about the government or like hospitals hiring those type of services is changing and it's changing really fast which is good we actually have had a norm approved i think it was a four to five months of pronunciation from the ministry of health that you are actually allowed to keep healthcare data from chileans in the cloud that came four to five months ago. So that led to an amount of projects that we have waiting for that to strike ahead. And then we are fully booked here in Pegasus, I think, for the next five or six months because we had that approval. Um, And in regards to what you were saying about the implementation of a digital healthcare, like I, I think small division inside of the Ministry of Health, the MinSAL, that happened during the ministry, Minister Santelices management. Well, a little bit before the pandemic, Santelices was relieved from his position. He currently works as an advisor 
among many other things for Movement Health 2030, our movement that we are part of. And he was he his ministry role his role in the digitization of the ministry was cut short of funds. So there was a public bidding for for this type of digital hospital type of implementation. OMI, a, a Spanish company, won the bidding with a software that's called OMI 360. They were the ones that were going to, going to develop the digital hospital. But then the funding was cut short by, by the next ministry's management. It became like a walking <laughs> walking zombie or something like that, the, the digital hospital that's called here in Chile. So currently it's like working at very low capacity. And most of the institutions that currently have implemented some sort of teleconsultation, at least in the public sector, some sort of teleconsultation process. They did it on their own. They created their own technology or hired local suppliers. And they do have this type of issue of hiring subscriptions in order to pay for that. So what they usually do is that they do annual contracts. They are allowed to renew every year. But it doesn't work like a SaaS or the other software as a service providers in the region. So you usually pay that for that every year in a contract renewal format. We started working like that as well. It's the tendency in the region, like you know, the hospital gets the budget to pay for this once a year. And it's actually easier for them to defend that in, in when they get questions about the service supply to patients throughout the hiring of this third-party vendor. And the other thing that we have seen is that many hospitals, instead of looking in the region for solutions already well built for to deal with the circumstances, they actually started fortifying their own IT departments. And they, if they had nine people before the pandemic, they now have 12, 14. So that they decided to go the inter- many hospitals, like some of them like decided to hire external vendors, but most of them decided to develop this technology from the start on their own. So they hire and this IT department hires uh, a generic vendor to start supplying the service. So we have seen a lot of things here in Chile as well. Everyone faced the circumstances in their own terms. There's not like a transversal agreement throughout the country on how to deal with it. There was disagreement with a digital hospital was supposed to mandate like a way of operating throughout the digitization of healthcare services, improving teleconsultation capabilities. But what ended up happening was that throughout the changes experienced throughout COVID, every hospital dealt with the circumstances and dealt with the challenge in their own terms. And like very broad rules or very broad politics established, policies established by the healthcare ministry. What about the startup ecosystem? I remember that you said that Chile is very vibrant and lively for startups. And there is a lot of focus on collaboration between different providers for the sake of providing the best possible care, which is only possible when solutions are interoperable. So how has that changed in any way? How would you assess the digital health landscape in Chile at the moment? I think that's a very interesting question. I've seen that many of the collaborations that started in the times of the pandemic have advanced, but they haven't advanced as fast as we thought they would, because many of them hit 
uh, regulatory wall in many cases. Like I was telling you, we were waiting for about two years on a pronunciation from the healthcare ministry to state whether we could use the cloud to store Chilean patients that, that go to the public sector on the cloud. And the pronunciation came four or five months ago. So many projects. What did, what did mm -hmm. you do in the meantime? Like, how did you store data? Did you just we don't. <laughs> yeah. Now, many of these projects were just waiting for them to be implemented. Like we, we advanced the other parts of the implementation process. For one, we started like really nailing down, the, polishing the problems that the institution currently have. Like many of these conversations were about two years, two and a half years, uh, talking to the institutions on which are the problems that they currently have and what type of services could we provide to understand and address those problems and speed up the patient's journey. But those discussions were waiting for these like regulatory definitions to happen and some regulatory approvals as well. So, and for example, there's a couple of those projects that we work here specifically on the oncology region that kind of were showcased in the hospital, like this is where we need to go. But internally, when you started like reviewing the process or the project, you were like, oh, so we need this approval from the healthcare ministry. We don't have very good internet access currently, so we are doing requesting an increase in our bandwidth from the ministry, or we are requesting an increase in the bandwidth, and we are hiring a private vendor to provide us this internet access. But the ministry has like very tight regulations in how to how to get those contracts going with these private vendors. So there's the disposition to be able to change the hospital becomes very receptive and they want the platform to start like now and they give you the entire push and then the entire support but then these regulatory decisions usually take a long time and that's why we probably see that the epic or cerner like corporations in latin america when they say that they are going to do a digital transformation for a public service they that usually takes between three to five years because you yeah go ahead no sorry are you i was just thinking that what exactly happened to venezuela you were building and covered a lot of the market with your ehr there so did you are you still present there at all or did you completely pivoted no we tried like in 2021 we gave our platform for free for the venezuelan cancer anti-cancer society to use in their facilities and there, there was no work for them to start using the platform because they didn't have good internet access. Venezuela still depends on Cantebe, which is the national telecommunications company, to provide internet because private internet is quite expensive. It can run $400 to $1,000 per month. But usually in this type of charitable organizations, they don't have that kind of budget. And even if you pay for a private vendor, then internet is super lagging. Like, Usually what we do in a vendor, like a batch process that we run in 30 seconds in Venezuela can take five to six minutes. We, we experienced that with the internal development team. Like the wait times from the people that we currently have in Venezuela 
are much longer in terms of merging new developments to the platform than the people, the team that we have in other countries in Latin America. That's one of the key issues there. Still, the problem of Venezuela are getting cloud services provided. We do have a model in which we can deploy a cluster in the customer's servers, but it's hard to find a clinic that has a server that can, can provide services with Pegasi. They usually need to have a server with like specific capabilities and we need to have like on not 24-7, but very frequent internet access to that server to maintain it. And that's not that easy. So internet access was the main barrier of us having an established operation in Venezuela. We have a lot of people that, like all customers that want to enter the service, but it's not possible for them. They have very bad internet in their clinic. They have very bad internet in their houses, in their phones. And we try to optimize the platform as much as we can. But if you are connecting from a 256 kilobytes internet velocity, it's not going to go that fast. You know, it's not, it's probably not going to be that easy to connect. And in terms of stability, I think the situation in Venezuela has stabilized quite a little bit. Everyone says that Venezuela changed and we are back to being an incredible country, but it's on the surface. And if you live in Caracas, uh, other parts of the country have. I had one of my quality assurance engineers. He had 12 hours of power cut, like two days ago, three days ago. And he worked throughout the night in order to catch up to what the other team members were doing. So that doesn't happen in a country that actually works. So the markets that you are present in Chile, Venezuela, Dominican Republic and others in the region, it's just focused on cancer care. Yes. Okay. We started focusing on cancer care since 2021. Okay. Can you compare the countries that you operate in? I know that mm -hmm. you mentioned that it's still quite fragmented. From my European perspective, it still doesn't look that fragmented. We've got two, eight, ten million people countries, so 30 sounds quite a lot. Mm -hmm. But still, how do how do you actually even scale across markets? To which extent does the legislation differ? And how difficult is it for you to get the deals? Are they done through public procurement? Because if that, that is the case, those things also can take years before you actually even get to the first customer. Yeah. It's very interesting, the difference between the countries in Latin America. For example, here in Chile, cancer care is mostly public. About 70% of cancer care is provided in the public sector. Digital transformations have to happen in a context where either you are dealing with prevention, the, the quickest way, because with prevention, then you don't have to run the entire uh, oncology cycle. Or if you are doing that type of implementation, you usually fit like your software in a space that the other softwares don't necessarily cover. Um, it's the case of one of the public hospital implementations that we are currently doing. We are taking care of the molecular tumor board side. They don't have a platform to discuss oncology cases in a fast manner. We created that software specifically for that implementation. We are scaling that software in other countries in Latin America as well. But it was created uh, given the circumstances of getting all of the information that comes from the oncology patient's case in a fast and thorough format that allows you to discuss quickly 
and create a diagnosis and a treatment plan as fast as possible. So with that tool, we currently are expecting to increase 14 diagnoses per hour in, in a tumor board to 18, even 20 diagnoses per hour. So that means that their gathering becomes about 30% more efficient every week. So that means four extra patients are entering care that week because we allow them to get all of that information in the same place, prepare their cases quickly, exhibit them quickly, and get an opinion quicker. It, it becomes a way to create a much more efficient patient journey throughout the entire process. And in that implementation, we are not substituting their EHR. That would take a lot longer time that we currently are doing. We're just implementing this specific module that allows you to have a seamless process. In Ecuador, on the other hand, they don't have that much prevalence of EHR software or other types of platforms. So usually when you go into a clinic, and it's been the case in the ones that we have talked to, they have like legacy EHRs, like mostly destructured data. When they start showing them the advantages of implementing like current digital solution, technological solution, they see a huge benefit in terms of their work cycle and in terms of the advantages that they can offer to their patients. And also the ability to do research using that data. Because currently, most of the EHRs in, in Ecuador do deal with this structured data. When we have to do an integration or an interoperability approach with them, usually goes throughout an ETL, extraction, transformation, a lot of data. And we do a lot of manual structuring of that information because data banks are sometimes what you call a database. It's actually more of a glorified word sheet and a word page. So that means you have to be very creative in terms of how to structure the data. I don't know. We are doing in Ecuador the National Human Papilloma Virus Screening Protocol. We are currently covering about 24,000 women. We expect to cover about 217,000 by the end of the year. We do this in partnership with Roche. And what we currently are doing with that specific project is implementing a small part of the platform that's called Haptic. With, to do deal with patient contactability and results recovery from the laboratory information system that you have installed in each of the hospitals and being able to quickly deliver those results to the patient and the physician that asks for the results in order to see if the patient is HPV-16 or HPV-18 positive, then you can move quickly and they get those lesions uh, tended to before they become cervical cancer. In that type of approach, we usually see that we have to integrate a lot of unstructured data. That's the one that you do need to get to an early diagnosis. And that structuring allows us to create like BI dashboards that give you the ability to create real-time population health management. Are you using any internationally recognized standards for structuring the data? How do you do that? And the natural question in May 2023 is... Are you using any of the large language models to do that? Yeah, we are currently using HL7 Fire, not just as a layer of communication, but actually as a layer of storing the information in that format. We think it's it's very complete what you store. And we also deal with our architectures, microservices oriented. It's 
much easier for us, our internal architecture is called CQRS, uh, Command and Query Responsibility Segregation. So that means that, for example, if you're running the patient microservice and then you have to populate an episode or on a, an encounter of the patient with the patient's information, the encounter microservices doesn't have to go to the patient microservices to get that information. Instead, the episode contains all of the patient information that it needs to actually show that for the physician and for them to interact with a, with a patient's encounter. So that means a very big advantage in terms of how to draw data. We use NoSQL to implement that. We use MongoDB in their Atlas service. So that means that all of our microservices are completely autonomous and they don't depend on other microservices to work. Well, of course, you depend on the security layer. The authentication microservice is always checking if you are an authorized actor to do a specific function. The other microservices are completely independent. And HL7 Fire as a model complies with level three modeling of data, helps a lot to keep the data completely concentrated or completely nuclear. And that allows us to do a lot of cool things in terms of these real world population projections that we are doing. There are no joins happening inside of the database. So that means you, like you, you, the, your payloads are a little bit heavier, uh, but then you don't have the processing time that you usually need when you have that data connected in an SQL format. Now, that's the decision that we took in terms of infrastructure, seeing like internet access might be lagging in Latin America. If you don't load the complete payload, then you have the information that you need to work, and then you don't have to wait for the processing power to do something else in that data. What about AI? So how much of AI can you use or plan on using you can also talk about the generally what you're observing in terms of the AI development in healthcare in Chile or the region. We, we are seeing currently in terms of AI is a lot of use of AI to automate exchange processes and also to label data, especially label what you call destructured data. If you currently have the origins of the data and you can like get it together in more or less stable columns and rows, then it's helpful for research. But if you don't, then there's a lot of manual nomenclature or manual semantics that you establish with that type of data in order to get it ready for research. And that's been like slowly transitioned to a job that you delegate to an AI service that you train specifically for that purpose in dealing with this type of unstructured data. We also have seen a lot of work towards automating workflows, redundancy given. That, that uh, workflow automation is it's getting stronger and stronger for private institutions, not that much in the public sector. And that automation allows you to do automated triages for patients in order to see you where they should go instead of an institution. That's like the public sector use I've seen so far on the private sector. There's a lot of customer support that's being done using AI. There's a lot of analysis that's being done using AI. Like, for example, you take in the PDF that's sent to you from the public insurance company and processing that into a format that you can 
transform into a patient's case. And that's usually being done by machine learning algorithms that were like in-house drafted by the institution. So I think those are like the use cases that I've seen. It's more about automating and more about increasing the efficiency of the workflow. Um, there are like very separate cases I have seen using AI for research uh, specifically, not for just structuring the data, but actually analyzing the data. There's three AI stages like description, prediction, and prescription. I would say in healthcare, what I've seen in my experience is mostly on the descriptive level, like helping you understand the reality that's happening and getting ready for more prescriptive or more predictive type of models. Um, we, we in Pegasi specifically, we have seen that our evolution is when we have enough data, we currently have about 500,000 oncology-related uh, electronic health records. But that's not nearly enough because we have I don't know, a large amount of different types of cancer. So when we are doing, for example, breast cancer, we have 13,000. That's not that much. So when we do increase the amount of cases that we are dealing with, our main objective in the short term would be creating predictive algorithms, like analyzing that information, saying, for example, we did a test about a year ago with a partner in Spain that we were able to create a model that predicts whether a woman with breast cancer that had that cancer operated is going to have cancer again in about two years because we analyzed like different uh, inputs from their medical record. So we create a curve of risk for that patient of having a relapse into cancer. But that's based on 13,000 cases. That's not nearly enough to have a very solid model that can go into production. So the prospect is developing contracts or developing research agreements with the hospitals that we are currently working with in order to get those algorithms in a more public type of use case. But there's a lot of data to collect and to process <laughs> until we get there. It's probably going to take about a year and two years in order to have enough working data for that. Yeah, it's, it sounds still a tight timeline if you actually want to do that and have that in production and available in one to two years. We mentioned that a lot of things have changed since in the last three years, unfortunately, to a degree backwards, at least in terms of the hopes and support for healthcare digitalization. What are your expectations of the upcoming few years based on the trends and attitudes of the governments that you see in the countries that you operate in? Do, to which extent are the developments very different? To which extent are countries very clear about what they want to do with the digital transformation of healthcare and how are they also dealing with the general global healthcare challenges of the lack of workforce and the rising need? for healthcare services? I, I think the trend here in Latin America, that there's a very positive consequence on, the, on this search of technology ways of uh, technological ways of managing the, the pandemic, is that when you show a very advanced technology solution for a specific healthcare problem, no one is surprised. It's not, wow, where is the bunny living in the hat when you show it to the public? That's very good. Um, there's no surprise anymore, and people can 
that do know that there are very cool things that you can do to in, with technology to speed up their use cases. And like this participation in pilots or the design of the rethinking of processes using healthcare digitization happen a lot more often. For example, there's an initiative here in Chile for from the National Center for Digital Information in, in Healthcare specifically. And CORFO, which is the the, the ministry or the, the corporation for incentivizing economic growth and innovation in the country. They created an initiative that's called Play for Collaboration, Juegatela por la Innovación. And this is a scenario where that is very cool that gives institutions that don't usually innovate the opportunity to talk directly with entrepreneurs to get the ability to create projects that actually take their problems into account and design solutions or implement solutions that solve those specific problems. And I think this is the advantage of this not being surprised by technology solutions in healthcare is that the centers know that with technology, with informatics, everything is completely possible. And they actually go to the market looking for these types of solutions and they select the solutions. We can co-create those solutions and we can implement what we have ready. And But the problem is the one that we haven't solved yet is how do we acquire those solutions? The solutions are there. They're very good. You prove them, you try them in real scenarios, which is something that didn't happen before. It was very clustered. It was very, very tight, close, what was happening inside of those institutions. But and we currently have the ability to test faster. But what we need to devise, at the very least here in Chile, is how can we monetize those solutions? Like, how can we create a scenario where the parts, for example, the startup gets the funding that they need to support the solution, the hospital gets the funding that they need to pay for the solution, and whether it becomes a public-private partnership to maintain that solution in the long term. That's the hurdle that we are currently solving here in Chile. In Ecuador, which is the other country where we have the largest operation, given that you are solving many of the issues that they currently have in terms of revenue cycle, in terms of patient services, it's easier to get. But it's easier if you're doing like a one-stop shop type of process because implementing a very small solution has to be part of a larger solution in order for the hospital to consider it worthwhile implementing. So it's really different between the, those the two markets. And that speaks volumes about the contrast that you find trying to scale a solution that works in a certain manner, for example, in Chile, and scaling that in Ecuador. We in Ecuador have the opportunity to implement an entire hospital. Here in Chile, we have the opportunity to implement certain models in certain hospitals and connecting those models together to create more intelligent information processes. So it's really different, but I think it's really good. Each country has their own challenges in terms of digitizing their processes, but I think the scenario is painted in a manner that says that every country is looking for solutions to digitize and to increase operational efficiency, mostly through technology. And I think the pandemic showed you that is possible. And now it's 
how do we make it also sustainable throughout time? It's a big question for healthcare in general because there's so much, not just economics and calculations involved, but so many factors that you need to include so you can actually claim that maybe some software had specific specific impact on the economics which would help you with justifying the return on investment. But it's a general challenge also related to market preparedness, which is something that we are still trying to figure out with digital therapeutics space and definitely not something that we can solve in this discussion. Luis, thanks again for your time again, for the updates and the insights on the markets that you operate in. Thank you very much for the space. I'm happy to share that. And this is something that we have seen in the region, sadly. Many of the startups that had great ideas before the pandemic or during the pandemic that were created in the pandemic are not currently among us now because their projects are faced during the pandemic specifically or more especially severe like economic drought. <laughs> we are happy to see that we, Pegasus, actually growing and because I think that most of that comes from being really specialized in terms of the mission that we currently have. This is a mission that's not pandemic dependent, actually has a lot like the issues of accessing cancer care after the pandemic are bigger. Wait lists are bigger than ever. We have a two-year debt in terms of uh, our hospitals in Latin America. And we have seen that the hospitals, oncology hospitals really respond to that. Uh, they say this is something that can actually help us quite a lot into dealing with these wait lists that we have left over from the pandemic. So I think that's the answer. Like my suggestion to other startups trying to survive in this not prosperous situation, economic situation that we have in Latin America, it's like really focusing on a specific problem that the, your target customer has and getting that problem really polished. After that, you usually get word of mouth references to other actors in that specific country or to other countries in Latin America, which is what happened to us. But I think innovation is still alive and kicking in Latin America. Happy to see that every year. Happy to see that every, at every turn. And there's a lot of spaces and a lot of problems to solve, which is what gets you from waking in the morning every single day. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to the show, or follow us on LinkedIn. Additionally, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Stay tuned. <laughs>